0: Welcome to the podcast today. My name's Todd Fraser. Associate Professor Marianne Chapman is a staff specialist in intensive care medicine at the Royal Adelaide Hospital and a clinical associate professor in the School of Medicine at the University of Adelaide is the Director of Research in the ICU at Royal Adelaide Hospital and her clinical research interests include gastrointestinal dysfunction, complicating the administration of enteral nutrition and glucose metabolism in the critically ill. It's a privilege to be able to speak to her on today's podcast. Welcome Marianne.
1: Thank you very much Todd.
0: I guess the first question to ask about feeding is when, how early should we be considering it in our patients and how strong is the evidence base for this?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question to start with. Um, the uh, time of starting a feeding is one of those um, issues which is approached um, with interest in, uh, in, the ICU, in ICU management. Um, it's, uh, I think it's widely believed that uh, starting feeding early is a good thing for our patients. But when you actually look at the evidence for that, the evidence is somewhat limited. And probably the best paper to address that is a paper by Gordon Doig and Andrew Davies, which was published in 2009 in Intensive Care Medicine. And they uh, did a meta-analysis on um, six randomized controlled trials, which only included 234 patients. So uh, you can imagine there how small each individual study study was. So with the meta analysis, they were able to show um, improved mortality and a reduced incidence of pneumonia with early starting of enteral feeding, that is in the first 24 to 48 hours. But they admitted themselves that really the the evidence should be viewed as somewhat weak. And uh, there certainly is uh, opportunity to do more research in that area. Having said that, I think it's widely believed that uh, enteral feeding should be started early. And uh, I guess that's also supported by one of the studies which we have done and uh, published uh, um, earlier this year, where we were just looking this time just at the physiological um, response to starting feeding either late or early. So in that study, we randomised patients to starting feeding within 24 hours or after four days. And what we found was that glucose absorption was uh, much reduced in the patients who were fasted for four days. So that uh, suggests that um, that the uh, small intestinal mucosa is adversely affected by a fasting period and so um, suggests that if you do delay starting feeding that patients are actually going to be um, affected uh, from their nutritional outcome. So I think, uh, although the evidence is, uh, is weak, that overall um, we should be starting feeding early, at least until, uh, until that's superseded by further evidence.
0: Is it likely that we'll see that evidence coming through in the near future?
1: I am not aware of any um, large multi center trials actually addressing that question, so no, I don't, um, I don't think that's going to address, be addressed any time soon.
0: The literature for the past decade or so seems to have been concentrating on how to improve the delivery of feeds up to calculated target values, assuming that this would be good for patient outcomes. But there's been some recent evidence that questions the validity of that assumption, and I was just wondering what your thoughts are on sub-target feeding.
1: Yes, it's been a very exciting 12 months um, with regards to um, calorie goals, particularly in our ICU patients. And perhaps the uh, most exciting, certainly the most robust study looking at um, enteral feeding goals is the um, EDEN study, which was done by the ArtsNet group in the United States and published early this year. So in that study, they looked at um, just a group of patients with ARDS and they randomised them to um, either full feeding, Just this is just enteral feeding, not topping up with TPN, or a very what they call trophic feeding, which is where they delivered about 20% of their nutritional goals. Uh, firstly, they were very good at getting good separation in the two groups. So, um, so the low calorie group received about 400 calories a day, and this was for about the first seven days of their ICU stay. And the full fed group received about 1,400 calories a day. So, there was a good um, difference in calorie delivery. The primary endpoint in that study was ventilator-free days, and they showed absolutely no difference in that, uh, in that outcome. But there was also no difference in other outcomes that they looked at, which included um, length of intensive care stay, length of hospital stay, and mortality. So, so this suggests that it really um, doesn't matter how much we give our patients, particularly in the first week. And um, I think that uh, maybe um, should... Uh, Uh, let us approach our feeding of patients somewhat differently and maybe we don't have to push so hard to achieve nutritional goals, um, particularly doing things like um, topping up with TPN. There probably are, though, still a couple of questions about um, nutritional goals um, despite this study. So firstly, the study looked at a specific patient group, uh, which was ARDS patients, So there are other patient groups which maybe we would still be a bit worried about um, giving uh, small amounts of calories to, and that would be particularly our trauma patients, um, who uh, we believe have a high metabolic rate and um, possibly need a higher calorie delivery, and also perhaps burns patients. But also, um, in this study, they excluded um, malnourished patients, so... um, Baseline nutritional status also probably needs to be taken into account. And uh, so it may be important to achieve higher nutritional goals in patients who've got um, baseline poor nutritional status. But then the other group we need to consider is the obese patient. And again, they excluded very obese patients in this study. And there is some, uh, there is some evidence that um, underfeeding obese patients is beneficial but there is also some observational data which suggests that it's important to achieve nutritional goals in that group. So I think uh, we really have to say that we don't know how to feed that, um, that group at the moment. The other issue, um, the other question that remains is, uh, is still the calorie dose. So in this particular study they looked at 20% versus 100% of calorie goals. But there's still all the um, doses of calories in between. And there was another uh, study um, published last year by um, Dr. Arabi and his group from Saudi Arabia where he showed that delivering 60% of nutritional goals had better outcomes than 100%. So it is possible that there is a sort of U-shaped curve and uh, achieving somewhere or delivering somewhere between um, 20% and 100% may actually be associated with improved outcomes. So, I still think there is uh, more to be learnt about calorie goals, but uh, certainly that um, the Eden study was very um, important in, um, in determining how we feed our patients today.
0: One of the common problems that we see in the ICU, of course, is that of feed intolerance, mm-hmm. and that's one that you've spent a lot of time uh, researching. What do we know about this problem?
1: Yeah, so there's quite a few issues that we should consider there. Um, one of the um, topics of uh, of interest in the nutrition uh, literature of late has been what GRV we should be worrying about. That's the gastric residual volume. And um, it's highly variable in uh, nutritional protocols um, what gastric residual volume people act on. Um, at our site, we, uh, we use 250 mLs, but, um, but it really varies uh, quite significantly across sites. And the reason why we act on a particular gastric residual volume is because we're worried about aspiration. Now, there's been a couple of studies over recent years which have suggested that we can allow our patients to have larger gastric residual volumes Um, safely without the risk of aspiration. And uh, the biggest of these was the REGAIN study, which was published uh, in Intensive Care Medicine in 2010. And in that study, they randomised patients to have uh, action taken at a GRV of 200 or 500 mLs. And they showed that there was no um, safety issues in the patients who were left um, with a, a gastric residual volume of 500 mLs. The issue with that, though, is that a, gastric, a large gastric residual volume does indicate a slow gastric emptying rate. And uh, we've, been able to, so we've done so, several studies now looking at um, various prokinetics, but particularly metoclopramide and erythromycin, and we have been able to show that if we um, give either of those drugs to patients with large, large gastric residual volumes, we will be able to live, deliver more feed. So this is, of course, assuming that delivering more feed is going to improve clinical outcomes, which is something we've just discussed. But um, nevertheless, we, I would still suggest that you react to a, any, some particular gastric residual volume by giving a prokinetic. But maybe what you don't need to do is slow your delivery of nutrition. So you could continue um, the same rate of nutrient delivery, but just act in response to a large gastric residual volume by by giving a prokinetic. Then the question is, um, what prokinetic should you use? And that's something that we have addressed um, here with um, several clinical trials. So we have compared uh, metoclopramide to erythromycin, and erythromycin is clearly a more effective agent um, at improving both um, or reducing gastric residual volume but also improving nutrient delivery. And we've also done a a subsequent study where we compared erythromycin alone um, to erythromycin in combination with metoclopramide. And again, the combination is more effective than erythromycin alone, both at reducing gastric residual volumes and improving nutrient delivery. So I think if you are trying to achieve nutritional goals, then uh, you should respond to a... Large gastric residual volume, whatever you choose, by um, by administering a combination of metoclopramide and erythromycin. There, some some people are reluctant, though, to use erythromycin. It does have a couple of side effects. Um, one is uh, cardiac uh, toxicity; it can cause arrhythmias. I think that's unlikely at the doses that uh, that are needed for for a prokinetic effect. Um, erythromycin's effects are dose dependent and um, we've found that a dose of 100 to 200 milligrams is probably more effective than high doses, and it only has to be given twice a day. So at those low doses, you shouldn't see cardiac complications. But the other issue, the other fear with the use of erythromycin is that it is an antibiotic, and uh, we're all aware that that use of low-dose antibiotics can increase um, microbial um, resistance. And uh, so there is uh, some reluctance to use erythromycin, at least for protracted periods of time. And we're currently um, uh, studying a, a new motilin agonist. So erythromycin acts as a motilin agonist um, and that's how it accelerates gastric emptying. And there is a new motilin agonist that we're studying, which has been uh, manufactured by GSK. <clears throat> that's also being used in diabetic patients with um, slow gastric emptying, and so hopefully we'll see that on the market um, in the next few years and it'll give us an alternative to erythromycin. Then, uh, finally, um, a way to deliver more nutrients to patients who've got large gastric residual volumes and slow gastric emptying is to use a post feeding tube. However, um, this is... Uh, another interesting area with regards to delivery of nutrition because there have been a couple of um, reasonable-sized randomised control trials, um, both done in Australia, which have failed to show that the use of post tubes actually increase nutrient delivery. So that's contrary to um, what people would expect from, uh, from their clinical use. So so postyroid tubes are something that we really only reserve. We, we really reserve the patients who are really struggling with their gastric feeding, uh, we do still use them, but um, uh, are aware that the studies have failed to show really a lot of benefit.
0: Another attractive option that's been discussed in the literature is the use of ventral naloxone. I was just wondering what your experience has been with that.
1: Yeah, so um, we haven't studied that, um, but we have used uh, naloxone occasionally in patients who are not responding to other other treatments. The uh, the problem that we're using an naloxone is the dose. It's a, um, a massive dose. So uh, I think from memory, it's uh, about eight milligrams. And when you remember that in the amples that we use intravenously, I think they're four hundred micrograms. So. Uh, so you need a, a massive number of, um, of ampoules to actually deliver a, a decent dose, and it's pretty expensive. So uh, for that reason, we've used it rarely. I think if you really do want to use it more frequently, it, you can um, get a, get larger-volume ampoules, and uh, that might make it a little bit more convenient. Um, we haven't studied it, so I can't tell you how it compares um, in its efficacy to, to the other agents that we use. There is also another opiate antagonist, another enteral opiate opiate antagonist called called alvimipam, and that's available in the States. But again, that hasn't been rigorously studied in the ICU population.
0: What about at the other end of the spectrum? Uh, Enteral feeding is often uh, borne the blame for for diarrhoea, which is almost ubiquitous in uh, long-term ICU patients. Is there uh, any evidence that the feeding or the type of feed influences this?
1: Um, I think there, there is very limited evidence that uh, diarrhoea is related to enteral feeding. And, um, and also, although there's talk of manipulating the, uh, the feed formula to try and um, prevent diarrhoea, um, there is nothing that has actually been shown to be beneficial. So people have talked about um, adding fibre to the, the formula um, but there is a small study which suggests that that, that doesn't work and um, so we don't routinely use that. And um, there's also some talk of using probiotics to control diarrhoea, but again, that hasn't been proven definitively. And uh, in a couple of years ago, uh, there was a large study where they gave probiotics um, into the small intestine of patients with uh, pancreatitis and it was associated with... Um, small bowel ischemia and an increased mortality. So I I think since that study, we have to be a little bit careful with our probiotic use, at least until we've seen more studies on safety.
0: Can I turn your attention to the type of feed now? Um, Is there a best feed, and is it likely that there's going to be a a one-stop shop, or is there certain groups that might benefit from certain feed manipulation?
1: Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot um, still to be um, learnt uh, about that, and at this stage, I don't think there is feed. There has been, um, you know, in the past, uh, various feed formulae, which have supposed to have been designed for various conditions. So, for example, there was the um, low-carbohydrate, high-fat feed that was supposed to be good for patients with respiratory failure. But um, but I think uh, that has become less um, popular of late. I, I really think that the the patients who who are going to benefit by that sort of manipulation of macronutrients are very a uh, uh, very few. And the issue with high fat formulae are that they fat fat really um, strongly retards gastric emptying, so high-fat feeds are not going to be emptied easily from the stomach and so are not going to be absorbed. So um, so I don't think that uh, that's a feed formula that should um, be used with any frequency. Then there are other feeds that, for example, the low-protein, low potassium feeds that are recommended with renal failure, and they certainly are used uh, when you're trying to... Um, avoid dialysing patients. But uh, you just need to be aware of what you're doing there. There there is a big um, question mark around how much protein we should be giving our patients. Um, And there is a a feeling at the moment in the literature, although I'd have to say it's not proven as yet, that patients do better with high-protein feeds. Um, So we're talking sort of 1.2 to 1.5, and even higher grams per kilogram per day of protein. And this has particularly been shown in the patients with renal failure. So there was a small study done um, in Melbourne, published several years ago now, where they showed that patients who were on dialysis um, had a better outcome if they were given two grams of uh, protein per kilo per day um, compared to to lesser, lesser dosages. So, so while uh, low protein feeds can be used when patients are off dialysis, it may actually be better to, to dialyse patients more aggressively and give them uh, a more normal feed with um, normal amounts of protein and normal amounts of electrolytes. Most feeds are polymeric, which means that um, the protein... It's sort of a whole protein and a, a um, medium-chain triglyceride and then fairly simple sugars. The other... Specialised type of feed that we sometimes use is elemental feed, which um, we really uh, reserve just for patients who've got bad pancreatitis. So um, there's a, this whole issue of we, we're really not sure how much nutrient our patients are absorbing, and that's particularly a concern in bad pancreatitis. So if we've got a patient with pancreatitis who's got a lot of diarrhea, we will put them on elemental feed, hoping to improve their nutrient absorption. So, so overall, I guess the answer is that um, there's not a lot of uh, evidence to support any particular feeds, and it probably doesn't um, really matter what sort of feed you give your patients. The other thing that the dieticians will often do is um, give patients a more concentrated um, feed when they are not tolerating their feeds. Again, that's an unproven practice and um, uh, something that perhaps we should be looking at Dietitians also sometimes give protein supplements in the belief that um, that uh, higher amounts of protein should be delivered. Um, and again, I think that that is relatively unproven, although there's certainly a feeling in the literature that that um, may be the way to go.
0: The other major issue that is, of course, very familiar to most intensivists is the eternal friction between surgeons and intensivists regarding feeding in uh, those two uh, subgroups: one you mentioned with acute pancreatitis and the other being new enteral anastomoses. Uh, how strong is the, the evidence um, on our side, as it were, for feeding for those, uh, those specific groups?
1: Yeah, so, um, so the evidence is quite different in, the, in those two groups. So i start with pancreatitis because the evidence in pancreatitis is very strong. There are many studies now um, comparing enteral to parenteral feeding, In pancreatitis, and the evidence clearly supports enteral feeding. So, but it is surprising how long or how difficult it is to get this message through. And Andrew Davies um, surveyed Australian practice and published that study, I think, last year. And it really surprised me that that he showed that still around 50% of patients with pancreatitis in ICUs in Australia are receiving either full feeding from TPN or top-up TPN. And the the data clearly shows that there is reduced infective complications uh, with the use of enteral feeding and... um, Uh, and probably an improved mortality, uh, depending on which metanalysis you read. So I think the data is inarguable with with, uh, regards to enteral versus parenteral. One of the questions perhaps still remaining though is um, which route you should use for your delivery of enteral feeding. Um, So it has uh, been traditionally taught in the past that it's best to feed patients directly into the small intestine because that way you avoid stimulation of the, of the pancreas and possibly worsening the um, pancreatitis by um, avoiding a, uh, a stimulated increase in enzyme release. There's a couple of studies now where they've compared gastric feeding to small intestinal feeding. The studies are relatively small, but they both suggest that it's safe. Um, and probably doesn't increase uh, the inflammation from pancreatitis if you feed directly into the stomach. It's our experience that um, these patients frequently fail gastric feeding, but uh, based on those two small studies, we now start always start patients on gastric feeding and only move to small intestinal feeding if they fail gastric feeding. And uh, I strongly discourage people to uh, to use um, TPN to use intravenous feeding in that group. With regards to gastrointestinal anastomoses, um, the evidence is a lot weaker, um, but the evidence would still support early enteral or oral feeding. I mean, I'm remembering that these patients are often. Um, not full blown intensive care patients, um, and often we're just looking after them in a sort of high dependency area. So they're not ventilated, and uh, so so there's I think three or four. So there's really not a lot of studies, but the studies the studies all suggest that it's quite safe to uh, start enteral feeding early. There's also some animal data, um, so they've uh, done some animal studies where they have fed animals um, immediately after anastomosis. And they've been able to show that, um, histologically, the anastomoses heal much better if um, if the animals are fed early. So so the evidence certainly is there to suggest that early feeding in that group is um, perfectly safe and probably better in terms of clinical outcomes.
0: It's obviously an exciting time for, um, for feeding practices in ICU. What do you see as the, the things that are likely to come up over the next couple of years and, and things that you think research should concentrate on?
1: Yeah, I, I still think there are um, a lot of important basic questions to be answered and I still think there's more to be um, worked out with regards to our nutritional goals. So, in fact, we are planning a, a large multi-centre study. This is through the clinical trials group, um, looking at 60% versus 100% of calorie goals to see how that affects um, clinical outcomes. And then, of course, uh, I think we, someone does need to look at protein delivery and try and work out whether um, it matters more about uh, delivering uh, high-protein um, uh, doses, um, even though perhaps it doesn't matter too much about the calories. Then the other issue that, um, that I would like to look at at some stage is, is just manipulation of the macronutrients of the formulae to, um, to improve uh, nutritional outcomes. So to improve nutritional absorption and, um, and gut function, and thereby improve nutritional outcomes. So, so really looking at um, the balance between carbohydrate, fat, and protein. And it may be that um, reducing fat and having modest amounts of carbohydrate and higher amounts of protein is going to result in better nutritional outcomes, but that's purely hypothetical.
0: Marianne, thank you very much for uh, helping us to understand this um, obviously very important area of intensive care practice. Thanks again. That's a pleasure. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not visit our websites, Critique and Nurse? Our websites are leading providers of critical care education resources. Our sites contain podcasts, video presentations and modules, searchable libraries and image databases, and much, much more. Critique can be found at www.crit-iq.com.au and crit Nurse at www.crit-nurse.com. Alternatively, visit our podcast page on the iTunes site and give us a high five.